Well, let's, um, let's pray uh, together one more time before we begin here. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you that you have sent to us a merciful and sympathetic and, Lord, a faithful high priest, a high priest that has passed through the heavens, who has gone before us into the heavenly sanctuary, Lord, to make atonement for our sin so that we wouldn't try to find our own ladder to heaven. But Lord, you show that upon you, not only will the angels ascend and descend, but upon you, O Lord Jesus, we will ascend into heaven. Father, we thank you for sending your Son to accomplish this work. And show us, Lord, what a merciful and faithful and great high priest we have indeed. Bless our time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as you can see from this passage in Hebrews, we've got quite a text in front of us. I'm not covering all these 10 verses. There's just no human possibility for me to do that. So what I'm going to do is take a more manageable chunk out of this text. And the way that I want to proceed at looking at these 10 verses is to sort of follow the train of thought of the author. Because what the author is doing is, of course, he's drawing an analogy between the human priest and our great high priest, the heavenly priest, Christ Jesus. And so there is a construction in this passage. There is an outline where what is said of the earthly priest corresponds ultimately and is fulfilled finally in Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do today is I want to take verse 1 and I want to correlate that with verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6. That is the text that we have in front of us. You know, we really are embarking on the largest part of the book of Hebrews. Isn't it amazing? that in the book of Hebrews, the largest section is chapter 5, all the way almost to the end, practically, of chapter 10, and all of it concentrating on the priesthood of Jesus Christ. So, if you ever wanted to know anything about the priesthood of Jesus Christ, stick around for the next year or so, because that's where we'll be. And hopefully, um, by the end of this, we'll know more than just that Jesus is a priest, We'll know something of his work. We'll know something of his person. And we'll get a greater glimpse of the beauty and the, the glory of the gospel that is rooted and grounded in his priestly duties and in his priestly offerings as our sympathetic high priest. Well, I want to point out four things mainly for us today. I want to look at the selection of the priest. I want to look at the solidarity of the priest with his people. I want to look at his mediatorial work. That is, that our priest is our mediator. And finally, I want to look at his sacrifice. First is his selection, or we could even say his installment. You see that there in verse 1. For every high priest is taken from among men and is appointed on behalf of men in the things pertaining to God. And so right at the outset, the author of Hebrews is... Um, keen on pointing out the installation of the priest and the fact that this priest is appointed, as he'll go on to say, not by himself, but by God. Look at verse 4. No one takes the honor to himself, 
but receives it when he is called by God. Well, we know that Jesus was called by God to be a priest. And we see this appointment. If you have an ESV, it sort of draws it out a bit better using the word appointed again later in these two verses. But he is appointed as son. And then in verse 6, more importantly, he says, you are a priest forever. And so he is appointed both son and priest. This is, of course, talking about Jesus' role, Jesus as the divine son and now Jesus as our priest priest. But it really is moving in a fashion that takes us from the lesser to the greater, from the temporal to the eternal. That's the way the text is developing. Here, the author is pointing out to us what are the qualifications and how is he selected. Ultimately, of course, this is speaking of the fact that Jesus is uniquely qualified to be God's priest our priest, to be the high priest, and that is what he is. He is our sympathetic. You remember sympathetic and faithful high priest. You remember if you just jump back to chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, all the way down to verse uh, 16, there we saw the last reference to Jesus, our high priest. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. I mean, that really is the thrust of the book of Hebrews. The thrust of the book of Hebrews is the person and work of Christ and how that is brought to bear on our confession, on our perseverance, on the things that we hold to be true, the conviction that we are called to hold fast. Now, talking about the choice of the Old Testament priests, I mean, this really is the redemptive historical purpose. When you read Leviticus 8... When you read in Exodus, for example, in Exodus 25 and in other places where all the priestly things are being put into place, what is the purpose that they served? Well, of course, the book of Hebrews tells us exactly what it serves. It serves to show us something about the shadow and the type and the prefigure of the final work of the ultimate priest, Jesus, who is giving himself as an offering, presenting his blood in the ultimate sanctuary, which is the heavenly sanctuary, God's heavenly temple. All this imagery is wrapped around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all meant to do, to point us to the final priest who makes atonement for his new covenant people. The very existence of the priesthood brothers and sisters, in the Old Testament, the very existence of the priesthood was a preparatory priesthood. It was a preparation to prepare us for the gospel priest, Jesus Christ, and the role of the priest, the work of the priest, and the environment of the priest. All of it is meant to point us as mere copies of the ultimate reality. Here, turn to Hebrews 8 for me to show you this, but in Hebrews chapter 8 we get this exact thing that is said to us. And it really is profound that the book of Hebrews is giving us an exposition of Exodus 25, 
verse 40 that I'll make reference to in a minute here that is actually quoted here in this passage. Hebrews 8, verse 4 says, Now, if he were on earth, that is, if Jesus was an earthly priest, he would, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. There's already earthly priests who serve, watch this, as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. Now, in Exodus 25, because that is what uh, verse 5 is quoting from, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Now, in Exodus, Moses is not told what he's doing. That Moses was making an earthly copy of a heavenly pattern. He didn't reveal all of that to Moses. This is so glorious for us because it means that in the economy of God, this is the way that it works. We go from the heavenly reality to an earthly shadow, a type that corresponds with the the reality that Jesus Christ fulfills, which corresponds with the original heavenly reality. This is the way that God had designed all things that pertain to the priesthood, the temple, the tabernacle, the sanctuary. Everything was preparation for Christ. But this is the, this is the greater reality. Everything was a derivative of Christ. Everything was rooted and grounded in that heavenly pattern that was shown to Moses that was based on these heavenly realities. It's just striking to me. I mean, don't you remember reading your Old Testament? Maybe you still do. Maybe you do right now. You pick up the Old Testament. You, you read the book of Leviticus, the book of Numbers. You read some of these priestly duties, and you're sitting there scratching your head and wondering, what does this have to do with me in the 21st century as I'm surfing the Internet on my iPod? What does this have to do with me as a modern man? Some of these old archaic rituals and ceremonies, it has everything to do with you because it has everything to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is referring, of course, this passage here in Hebrews 8 to the Levitical priests, but also to Jesus' priesthood. Not that it followed the Aaronic priesthood because that's exactly what verse 6 is telling us back in Hebrews chapter 5, that Jesus is not following the Aaronic priesthood. He is following the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, I know there's a burning sensation for all of us to get dive into Melchizedek. Who was he? A strange, mysterious Old Testament figure, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the hook so that you come back for future chapters for that especially chapter 7. And the reason why is because chapter 7 is all about Melchizedek. So we are going to be knee-deep in Melchizedekian theology. What did you study at church today? Melchizedekian theology, huh? <laughs> That's right. That's what we want to study. But really, ultimately, this is showing that these earthly priests that were appointed were nothing but a shadow of the, of the heavenly Christ. And in verse 5 and in verse 6, Hebrews really begins to set out the supremacy of the priesthood of Christ, who is appointed in the line of Aaron, not in the line of Aaron, but Melchizedek. Let's read it again because he uses two important psalms. 
In verse 5, he says, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then this is the correlation in verse 6. Just as, that's a comparative clause that links these two concepts together for a purpose. He says, He says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, why does he use these two texts? Why does he use Psalm 2, verse 7, and Psalm 110, verse 4? Again, isn't it amazing? I told you before that Psalm 110, and turn with, her, with me just briefly, to, if you would. Turn to Psalm chapter uh, Psalm 110, if you would, Psalm 110, because remember I told you early on in our exposition of the book of Hebrews that this is the most often, most popular, most often quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. It is the most often quoted Old Testament passage in the entire New Testament. And remember what was at the basis of this? It's an exaltation psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So what is that describing? Well, according to the author of Hebrews, that is depicting for us the exalted Christ. Go back to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. After he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In verse 5. He shows how that all the angels should worship Him, how He is exalted, how His throne is forever and ever, how He has exceeded all of His contemporaries, how He laid the foundation of the earth, and how does it, how does it end? Verse 13, sit at my right hand. In other words, back to this vision of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Well, now the author is saying the same, in the same breath where God says in Psalm 2, you are my son, today I've begotten you, clearly an exaltation psalm because there in Psalm 2, the son is ruling and reigning over the nations. And so he piggybacks on that idea, goes to Psalm 110 and shows that the same person, i.e. the Son, who was chosen to be exalted and to rule over the nations is the same person who is also appointed priest. And so he's saying, not only is Jesus designated Son, He is also designated priest. And this is what Psalm or excuse me, this is what chapter 4 already put forth for us. Look at back to chapter 4, verse 14 of Hebrews. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, watch it, the Son of God. And so now he proves that by connecting these two Christological psalms together around the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what the psalm is doing. The Melchizedekian priesthood is referenced here to begin to take us down the path of the permanent nature of Jesus' priesthood. Because Melchizedek antedates the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron and then his successors, it antedates that by several hundred years in Melchizedek. Not only is it permanent, my dear friends, but get this, it is not limited by the institutions of Israel. 
because the institutions are fading. You remember by the time of the time that Hebrews is right, written here, the, the, the temple is getting ready to be destroyed. At least that's my timing of the book of Hebrews. It is just prior to the destruction of the temple. But in a very short order, people were going to read about the book, or they were going to read the book of Hebrews, and they were going to read about the permanent nature of the priesthood. I tell you, this would come to be very precious material for early Christians who saw the temple destroyed and think, what of the priesthood? What happened to the labor? What happened to the sacrifices? What happened to the offerings? What happened to the priesthood? Thankfully for us, Jesus does not follow in the line of the institutions of Israel. He is not bound to temple. He is bound not to an earthly temple, but to a heavenly temple. And his priesthood doesn't end with the temple. It goes on because his priesthood is in the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron. He has a permanent priesthood. A priest that goes into the heavens. Now already... We are told in chapter 4 that his priesthood means everything to us. Our salvation is bound up in his priesthood. You remember in verse 15 he says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. That's the climax so that we may, have, we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Now, the reason that we can find grace and help was already spelled out to us in the Old Testament priesthood. The Old Testament priesthood was symbolizing that there is coming a priest who is going to dispense grace and mercy to us. This is why we have to preach Christ in the Old Testament. Let me say this. This is a controversial statement. most controversial statement I'll make all day. The literal, historical, grammatical method of interpretation should not prohibit a Christocentric interpretation of Scripture. It should enable it. It should enable it. And I will show you this in the details of the Old Testament priesthood in a moment. But first, first, let me move from the installment of the priest to his solidarity with his people because... You remember what it says there in verse 1 of chapter 5, our text. Every high priest taken, taken from where? From among men and is appointed on behalf of men. And so we are told there that the priest is to be in solidarity with his people. And of course, we know this already. We know that Jesus identifies with us. We know this from the very opening of, of the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. It is implied in verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, it is implied by the very fact that he makes purification for our sins. It is implied in the fact that he is the Son of Man, who having come down, having been made lower than the angels, exalts us, exalts man, brings man up, because he is exalted. He is the one in verse 9 of chapter 2, Jesus, who is crowned with glory and honor. And therefore, in chapter 2, verse 11, he is not ashamed to call us his brethren. He is not ashamed to call us his brethren. He shared with us in flesh and blood, verse 14. I'm in chapter 2. 
He was made like his brethren in everything, verse 17. He is tempted in what he suffered so that he could come to our aid, verse 18. And for this reason, he is a merciful, faithful, and sympathetic high priest who can identify with us because he stands in perfect solidarity with us. Oh, I thank you. This ought to make us so grateful. I tell you, this should make us so thankful that Jesus condescended to identify with us. And what happened when Jesus came and identified with the Jewish people? John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and those who were of his own did not receive him. So who is Jesus coming to identify with? He's coming to identify with the people that don't want to be identified with him. What does the solidarity of the, of the high priest mean for us? Grace. Grace, because by standing with us, by being among us, by being one of us, and then by representing us, we have a representative that we did not want. We didn't want him to be among us. We didn't want to be identified with, with him, even though he was willing to be identified with us. Jesus is the one who came, identified with the people that would then later turn in envy to kill him. See, he doesn't come to his friends. First and foremost, we are his enemies. And yet, he is willing to stand in solidarity with us. But thanks be to God that he brings us into his favor. We are his new people. We are his new humanity. And the necessity of Jesus' humanity is also referred to here. That he doesn't just stand with us, but he is actually one of us. It is imperative that Jesus is a human being. He must be human to redeem humans. He has to be one of us to redeem us. And that is exactly what he is. He is one of us. He is fully man. In every sense of the word, Jesus is man without sin. Without sin. The priesthood itself really only serves to remind us that this was God's eternal purpose for His Son. Turn with me to John chapter 17 because there is another priestly passage. This time, it is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is Jesus, our priest, praying. And in John 17, 4, we already hear something of the eternal purposes of God. Jesus knew what He had to do. He knew what His task was. He knew what His work was. He knew what His priestly duties were to represent His people, to be with His people. And in John 17, 4, this is exactly what Jesus is praying about. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And you say, well, yeah, but that's referring to just Jesus' life and the times of Jesus. My dear friends, everything that Jesus did, He did as a priest. He did it as a priest. He did it for us. He did it in our place. He did it in our stead. He did it as our sacrifice. His active obedience, meaning the things that He did while He was actively working and, and, and the things that He did positively are just as important as His passive obedience. The things that He suffered on the cross. Active and passive obedience. The point is that that obedient life that you are gazing at in the Gospels is done on your behalf because He has chosen to identify with you. 
He's chosen to call you His. You are His people. You are one of His. And that's why He says, I've accomplished the work that you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory that I had with You before the world was. Everything goes back to communion with God. Everything goes back to the unity of the Trinity. The high priesthood of Jesus is a Trinitarian affair. This is what He was appointed for. According to Peter, this is why Jesus was foreknown, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. This is why God had appointed Him, according to Acts chapter 10, verse 42, to be our Savior, to be our Lord, to represent His people. This is why He had to be born under certain necessary conditions in order to fulfill all righteousness. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, He had to be born at the right time under the right conditions with the right people. He had to be born in the right way. And all of this points to the very essence of His work, and that is next. Not only does He stand lockstep and in solidarity with us as one of us, taken from among us, but He is also our mediator. And this is another thing that His appointment as high priest points us to. He is our mediator. He is our go-between. He was chosen by God to be His man. He was chosen by God to be, in the words of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, to be that priest that would do all that is in the heart of God. You can't think of a more faithful priest. Every priest, you remember, had to make an offering for himself. Every priest had to sacrifice first for his own sins, but not Jesus. He doesn't need to sacrifice for himself. He sacrifices himself. So, this comparison between an earthly priest and a high priest has its limits. There is comparison and there is contrast. That is how the correspondence goes. He is with us. He is one of us. He was our mediator, but he did not in any way whatsoever need to make atonement for his own sin because he had none. He had none. Jesus was chosen to bring us to God, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. This is what it means. You know what the scariest thing is today when you talk to people is they think that they can stand before God on their own. People are all ready. They're all prepared. They're all too eager to say that they are fit and righteous and good enough and smart enough and that they think they are religious enough and they think they are prepared to stand in the presence of God, that they are okay. But my friends, the complete opposite is actually true. They are not okay. Jesus is our mediator. That's what He is. He is our go-between. And what that means is that we need someone to go between us. We need someone to stand in the gap for us, to bring us to God and to bring God to us. Look at this. Go back to chapter 5, verse 1 again. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men. There's the representation. And the things pertaining to God. Now, the things pertaining to God are His priestly duties. They are the religious ceremonies. They are the things that the priests were to do in order to represent the people. Now, if you turn to Leviticus chapter 8, Leviticus chapter 8, I'll tell you what, the book of Leviticus is quickly becoming my favorite book of the Bible. But you know how long that lasts. We always change our favorite book of the Bible. If I was preaching Leviticus, it would definitely be my favorite book of the Bible until I pick my next book. 
Leviticus chapter 8 is a wonderful picture of the priesthood of Jesus. It leads us right to the work of Christ. This is why it's so essential to preach a redemptive historical sermon. Because we are not just to stand and marvel at the historical artifacts of the Old Testament. We are to stand and marvel at the Christological implications of the Old Testament. That's what it's all about. Aaron, Leviticus 8 uh, verse 2. Aaron was separated, which really mirrors Jesus being chosen and separated and appointed as priest. The people in uh, verse 2 are also gathered together and they are presented or represented in the things pertaining to God, including offerings and atonement is all mentioned there. Aaron and his sons are also consecrated with water. They are set apart, in other words, for a holy purpose, just as Jesus was set apart for his purpose. Verse 6, they are gathered at the tent of meeting in verse 4, symbolizing that the priest was to minister in the presence of God, in the presence of God. The priest is also described in terms of his, his outer garments, his, the things that he wore, a description of this. This always struck me as odd. I didn't know why the priest and his garments and the way he dressed, why is that all being described? What does that really matter to me? What matters to you when you understand what does this correspond to? When the priests are being decked out, it is a symbol of the glory of Christ, the ephod. You remember we talked about this. The ephod with all of the gems and stones. What was that to represent? It was representing that the priest was symbolizing the, 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 um, the tribes on his heart and how he would come to God representing the people of God on his chest, on his heart. What a perfect, beautiful picture of Jesus who bore us upon his heart and brought us to God. A crown was put on the priests. In verses 7 and 9, you see that. They were, they were crowned, and what a symbol of the royal glory of Jesus Christ. And also, we are told that the priests were prepared afterwards, after all of that symbolic outer garment and all of the, all of the, uh, the, the, the apparel, after everything was ready, then verse 14 says, Then he brought the bull of a sin offering. See, the priest had to be readied. He had to be prepared. In other words, he had to be consecrated. And what was the consecration for? It was for representation. It was for redemption. It was so that he could represent us and to symbolize our redemption before God. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Let me read to you 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all. Does that sound familiar? Once for all. I tell you what, if you want to do an amazing study, this is just an aside here, a little caveat, an amazing study how the letters of Peter and Hebrews correlate. It's amazing. Anyway, God in his wisdom put them in that order. Just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. There's the, mediate, there's the mediatorial work of Christ, that he might bring us to God. If you are to go to God, you are to be brought. You will not go there on your own. Having been put to death in the flesh, but having been made alive in the Spirit, 
As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus became a life-giving spirit. A life-giving spirit. That's what he became. In Ephesians chapter 2, we are said that our access is to the Father in one spirit, and it is through him. Through him is the gospel. That's so, this is how you get lost in the Bible. Because you look at a word like through him, and what that implies is everything. His cross work, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, his atoning work, propitiation. It's all embedded in that language. Now, I mentioned this before, but the book of Hebrews doesn't have the word gospel in it, remember? Not one time does the book of Hebrews mention the word gospel. But I tell you what, the reality is, is as you look at the teaching of Hebrews, as you look at the theology of Hebrews, the very soul of the gospel is there because all of the components, all of the essential components of the gospel are there in the book of Hebrews, embedded there for us. The priesthood of Jesus means, first and foremost, that we are not right with God. You want to go through the gospel? Take a person through the theology of Hebrews. If they'll sit and listen long enough, you want to take people to the gospel? Just look at what the, the, the book of Hebrews is teaching. The fact that we need a mediator means we need mediation. It means we are out of step with God. We are condemned under the weight of the law. Obviously, we are not right with God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And this is Hebrews' way of telling us that. That Jesus was chosen to be our mediator also means that we are not only not in harmony with God, we're not in fellowship with God, and we need access to God because we have nothing to commend ourselves to God. The priesthood of Jesus, therefore, does not speak about our merit, that which our entire culture thinks it has, but it actually speaks about our demerit, our moral lack how the weight of what we owe, that's what the cross is. You know, sometimes I think when we say we use the law to show the sinner his guilt, but we don't talk about the cross until later, I think sometimes we would, uh, we would be best served to understand that when we're pointing at the cross, it is inseparable from the law. In other words, what the cross shows the sinner is what sin deserves. This is, the, this is what the curse of the law is. You can't understand the law apart from Christ. All you do is rattle down a list of commandments. And I do this. I use the law. I use the commandments. Ray Comfort, I'm there. Don't get mad at me. But what I'm saying is, what drives home the whole point? What is, the, what is the penalty of the law? What is the curse of the law? Don't lie, don't lie, don't lie, don't lie. The curse of the law is found in our mediator laying down his life on the cross and to see, look at what it looks like to be cursed under the weight of the law. In Deuteronomy, it's part of the law. Cursed is him who hangs on a tree. You want to drive home the conviction of the law. Show people what Jesus had to do to bear the curse of the law so they can understand this is what the weight of the law produces. It crushes the Son of God. Now you either 
receive from his sacrifice or you stand on your own two feet and you will be crushed. You will be cursed under the weight of the law. Thanks be to God that he was cursed for us. So it speaks to the fact that as a mediator, he takes care of our demerit. The priesthood also means that he prepares us for God through repentance and faith, through regeneration, and through our high priest interceding for us. He perseveres us. He, he, he preserves us, rather, to the very end. What about the resurrection? Well, it's already, it's already been referenced in Hebrews chapter 4, his total absolute exaltation, that the resurrection through the resurrection, our high priest has gone before us into the heavens. How does the old hymn go? Beyond the starry skies. Through the rim of the universe, through the edge of the heavens and the highest heavens, Jesus has penetrated. He has pierced through. As a matter of, as a matter of fact, this word here, derkamai, if you look at um, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, that's what I'm referring to. Our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Dare come I. It means to penetrate a barrier. It means, listen now, to move within. And that's what Jesus did. He moved within the veil. He moved beyond into the holy place. But in the midst of these things, there is nothing more significant. In all of his mediatorial work, there is nothing more significant, my dear friends, than his sacrificial work. And that's the fourth thing, his sacrificial work. So not only is he installed, and what does his installation mean? It means he stands in solidarity with his people. It means that he is the mediator of his people. And it means that he makes sacrifice on behalf of his people once again. Once again, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And that is precisely what Jesus does. He comes in and he makes a sacrifice, both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, gifts and sacrifices really is ultimately meant to, to convey one thing. And that is Jesus' work of atonement. Jesus' work of atonement. In verse 3 of chapter 5, he makes it very clear that that is precisely what he has in mind. Because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. But again... What the book of Hebrews is going to make crystal clear is that Jesus need not make a sacrifice for himself. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Look with me in verse 26. Because a morally righteous, a morally perfect person does not need atonement of sin. If he has no sin, there is no need for atonement. And so this is what Hebrews says. Hebrews is its best interpreter. You've heard it said, Scripture is its own interpreter. Well, so is Hebrews. Hebrews is Hebrews' own interpreter. Verse 26 of chapter 7. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted 
above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because he, ha- because he excuse me, because of this, he did once, excuse me, because this he did, there's the NASB, real rigorous, real literal, over literal sometimes, kind of kicking in there, or either that or I just can't read. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. It's not that he needed a sacrifice for himself, it's that he was the sacrifice. That's the point of it all. That's the point of it all. He provides the necessary atonement. Just like Melchizedek serves to show the permanence of his office, these verses, these verses here serve to show us that he did a once-for-all sacrifice, that his sacrifice is absolutely sufficient. Let me give you a couple other verses. Hebrews 9, verse 24, beginning in verse 24. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves, which uh, with better sacrifices than these, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us. There's our mediator. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enter the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he was manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The sacrifice of himself. The sacrifice of himself. That replaces the idea of the priest sacrificing for himself. That's what it's doing. It's replacing that concept. A sinless priest does not need his sin atoned for. That's exactly what he's saying. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. Having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. What this all tells me is that Jesus is adequate to be our sacrifice. Jesus is adequate to be our priest. He's equipped He's fully ready for ordination. I want to point out something to you. I want to point out something to you from the Old Testament, and we'll close with this. The sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice or the sufficiency of Jesus' priestly duty, that is also rooted in the Old Testament. For example, in Leviticus chapter 8, verses 28 through 32, what you find there is an interesting fact, and that is that the word for ordination, the Hebrew word is leloim, and leloim literally means to fill, and it was really a reference to the hands of the priest being full. Full with what? Full with the materials for the sacrifices. Full with the materials that were necessary to carry out the ceremonial activities of the priest. It means that he was totally prepared. And then they would take those ceremonial things, those ceremonial instruments and materials, and wave them before the Lord as a wave offering, symbolizing yet again the fullness of the sacrifice that was being made. Now this is what's interesting. In the In the Greek translation of the Hebrew word, leluim is translated with the Greek word teleosis. Now, teleosis comes from the word group teleos. 
teleao, telos, complete, full, perfect. And so what commentators have suggested is that what the book of Hebrews is doing is it's showing the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in places like Hebrews chapter 7, verse 28, when he makes things perfect, when the book of Hebrews calls for perfection. In chapter 9, verse 9, same thing. But in chapter 5, verse 9, we are told this, just as the Old Testament priests were made perfect, were made full, were adequately supplied, so Jesus was perfected. Verse 9, and having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal life. In other words, what this tells you and I is that our salvation is secure by virtue of Jesus' own perfection, by virtue of Jesus' own adequacy, the fact that He is a perfect priest. He makes a perfect atonement, resulting in perfect redemption. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, and I, I tell you the encouragement that we should draw from this is limitless. These same ideas, these same themes, these same scriptures even, the Apostle Paul uses to encourage the saints in the same way that you and I should be encouraged. Do you get depressed? Do you get condemned? Do you get overwhelmed with doubt, fear, anxiety, all of these things? Well, I'm not here to meet your felt needs, but I am here to tell you that Jesus' atonement is sufficient to cure a thousand ills of the soul. For example, Romans 8.33, it says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Sometimes we bring a charge against ourselves. We need to go no further than ourselves. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one that condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, watch this, who is at the right hand of God, not priestly enough for you yet, who also intercedes for us. It is the work of our high priest that leads us into, not condemnation, but into the glorious victory of the Spirit. It is the priesthood of Jesus that leads us, not to condemnation, but to live victorious as we consider ourselves in Him, in His work, not on our own merit, His merit. We can't cleanse ourselves, but He has made a perfect cleansing for us. The question of Hebrews is very simple. The singular gospel imperative of Hebrews is simple. Hold fast to this confession. Amen? Father... We confess here openly the assembly of the saints, much like the people were gathered around the tabernacle. Father, we come here and we confess to you now, we are so quick to loosen up our grip on our confession. We are so easily moved at times. We confess, O God, our weakness, and we thank you that Jesus, being our sympathetic priest, can identify with us. He knows that we are but dust. 
He knows, as Job says, we are breath. And Lord, we're so grateful that we have this priest, all of his priestly duties, all of his priestly work. Oh, Lord, thank you for Jesus. He is the supremely qualified high priest of your people. And we thank you for his once-for-all atoning work, that he made a sacrifice once for all that will perfect us, the worshipers, and that his sacrifice, which was offered up in the heavenly sanctuary, is sufficient not just to temporarily clean us up, and then we need to be cleaned up again next year. No, Lord, but for the whole life long, there is only one sacrifice that will ever be needed for our reconciliation, for our peace. Thank you, Lord, for our high priest. Thank you for choosing him, appointing him. Thank you for causing him to stand with us, to stand for us, and to be our sacrifice. Oh, Lord, we bless you for his sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.